HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. Today's program is brought to you by Corin, supplier of Japanese chef knives and restaurant supplies. For more information, visit Corin.com. I'm Erica Wides, host of Let's Get Real, the cooking show about finding, preparing, and eating food. You're listening to Heritage Radio Network, broadcasting live from Bushwick, Brooklyn. If you like this program, visit HeritageRadioNetwork.org for thousands more. Welcome to Magnifico Radio, bringing you the latest in ethical fashion, clean beauty, and sustainable living. I'm your host, Kate Black, and this is episode four. And today we're talking about slow fashion with designer Tara St. James. After stints as a designer for several denim and typical mall brands, my guest today launched her own brand, Study New York, here in Brooklyn in 2009. Study New York is dedicated to being a fashion brand that makes a difference. And she named the brand Study to bring her fans and clients along the ride while she studied alternatives in materials, methods of production, etc. And one thing has remained consistent in these seven years, her dedication to slow fashion. And I'm thrilled to have her here today. Welcome to Tara St. James. Hello. Hi. Hi. Happy Thanksgiving. Happy Thanksgiving to you. We were both discussing that since we come from the land of the north, that today is actually our Thanksgiving. Um, so before we talk about slow fashion, let's break down some of the terms. People know what fast food is, but maybe haven't heard the term fast fashion. What does fast fashion mean to you? So essentially, it's very similar to fast food. It's being made or produced quickly um, with response to trendy items, uh, which are increasingly fast and um, made with very little regard for the environment or social justice issues. Um, so, so the opposite of that, which would be slow fashion, would be similar to the slow food movement. So made with responsible production methods, uh, respect for the environment, respect for the people who are making the product, um, and a much slower response to, to all of those issues. So, so production itself um, being much slower and very little regard to, to trends. Okay. And I've read some of your writings on slow fashion. Mm-hmm. Did you coin the term? I absolutely did not <laughs> coin the term, although I'd love to lay claim to it. Um, I don't know who coined the term. I can tell you that. Okay, and when did you start practicing it? Um, inadvertently, I suppose, when I first started study in 2009, um, with no understanding that there was a term. I'm not even sure there was. There was. There was at the time. Uh, at the time, it was called 
I guess, green fashion. Okay. Um, and and there's been an evolution in terms throughout since then. Um, but I think I, I, in some ways, started it with my first collection, which was zero waste, um, and made using environmentally responsible materials. Okay. And the slow movement seems to have gained awareness and support globally um, for food. Um, and to the point that the Slow Food International is able to rally against certain legislation like the TPP. Do you see a slow fashion movement gaining momentum? I do. I see that through different certification bodies, uh, for example, GOTS or the GOTS um, certification is is starting to take precedent over not only the fiber um, and materials, but also the production methods. Um, and so really covering from from crop to, to the finished garment. Um, so instead of crop to table, it would be crop to shirt or seat to shelf as, a, yeah, that's as a good I've one. heard it point <laughs> exactly um, so in 2011 you were awarded the Eco Demani Fashion Foundation Grant for Sustainable Design that's right 2013 your anti-fashion calendar was named one of Sustainia 100 Solutions for Sustainability which is a global initiative spearheaded by Arnold Schwarzenegger that's right to promote innovative global solutions across all industries mm-hmm. and then in 2014 you were awarded runner-up in the CFDA Lexus Eco Fashion Challenge. Mm-hmm. Can we just break down some of those terms? Because mm-hmm. this show, this is only our fourth episode, but we're going to talk a lot about fashion. And I think that that these, for, for those of us in it, these terms are interchangeable, but mm-hmm. not always. So what does sustainable design, when you were awarded that, mm-hmm. um, that eco domani for sustainable design, what did mm-hmm. it mean then and what does it mean now? First of all, just hearing that timeline laid out for me makes me realize it's time for something new to I plug agree, into. I agree. <laughs> um, I think it's actually funny because the the dialogue around sustainable fashion, and I should preface this with saying that the brand I worked on prior to study uh, also used sustainable materials, but at the time we called it green fashion. Um, and so looking back at the timeline, my trajectory um, really makes me realize that the, the way that people talk about sustainability in fashion kind of is a a focus on how long they've been working in sustainable fashion because uh, 10 years ago we called it green. And green fashion was just a a way to categorize um, organic materials. It was pretty much all it was. Uh, And then it transitioned into eco. And I think that's a good indication of when you came into the... Magnif eco. Yeah, Yeah. exactly. Um, And then after that, it started changing to sustainable. And now I think the term ethical is a little bit more prevalent or more commonly used, um, but they are interchangeable, fortunately and unfortunately. So fortunately, because it means that you can use different terms to try to categorize what you're doing as a designer, but unfortunately for the, um, the consumer, because I think it does, it does confuse the consumer a little bit. There's so many different terms bouncing around. Um, and I think originally we, we just looked at materials and now we're looking at the entire supply, supply chain. So not only the materials themselves and how they're grown, if they're natural, um, but also the type of labor that's being used, uh, the type of transportation, the amount of waste that's being produced from the garment, um, how many garments, and how long they'll, they'll last. Um, so we're looking at post-consumer issues, too, like wearability, uh, washing, um, the type of, of, of wash that needs to be done by the consumer. Um, and so designers are starting to look at a holistic view of the product rather than just 
what type of material is being used for it. That's true. And you didn't mention synthetics, but I know that there's mm-hmm. been a lot of advance in that as well, like in terms of looking at the chemical inputs and outputs and making a synthetic material. That's right. So my main focus is on natural fibers. I tend to use more organic cottons, linens, hemps, uh, in my collection, wool as well. Um, but there's there's huge steps in, in recycled polyester, for example. Is that a design choice? Is that something that... Um, I think it's an aesthetic choice, primarily. Okay. I tend to gravitate more towards the natural fibers, but I, um, I certainly like a lot of the recycles that are out there, and uh, if the product line just happens to come into play. Um, so, for example, I want to make a, a rain jacket, which is on the, the works for next year, um, then I definitely gravitate towards the recycled polyesters. Okay, mm. interesting. Um, so, one of the other awards and accolades that you watch you won was for an anti-fashion calendar. So can you explain that for people who, I'm sure once you explain it, they'll understand it, but right off the bat, it's kind of like, what? Mm. So the anti-fashion calendar is something that I implemented in 2013. uh, And that I think really, uh, really is when I started laying claim to the slow fashion movement and actually had the vocabulary to, to understand it as well. It's probably when I started understanding slow fashion. Uh, And it's also when I realized that the traditional fashion calendar of shipping two seasons a year, which is what I was doing prior to 2013, didn't make sense for my brand. So it may make sense for some brands, and I'm not saying that this is a solution for everyone, um, but it, it... was something that uh, just fell into place for me. It was it was more of following my instinct. Um, I realized that producing two full collections every year and shipping them at the same time as every other designer just didn't make sense for me creatively, um, also financially, and was causing me to produce things that I didn't want to produce um, and not produce things or was stopping me from producing things that I did want to produce. So the example of that is I wanted to design something in November for the next collection, and I couldn't do it because there was no way in the calendar to to allow me to do that. So I wasn't able to show it to my stores. I wasn't able to um, show it to customers. So I couldn't design something which I thought was going to be really interesting. And I also found myself putting pieces in the line just to merchandise the line um, when I didn't think that they were valuable. I thought they were just commodities that I was filling in blank slots for. And that's the way we're taught in school to do it, is to have a well-merchandised collection. It's the way we're taught in industry um, to have a certain number of pieces. And it just didn't seem right to me. It didn't satisfy this aesthetic need that I had to be creative at certain times. And it forced me to be creative at other times. Um, And so I started thinking about alternatives to that, and that's when the anti-fashion calendar came in. And so it's basically a rejection of the typical fashion calendar and uh, an attempt at adopting something new. And so that's still sort of in the trial and error phase. And every year we we weed out different problems with it and bring in different solutions. Um, And so now what we've done is created a uniform collection, which is our bestsellers. um, And occasionally we'll change the fabrics of those or update them. And then to that, and, and really it does look like a uniform, so it can be merchandised together, it can all be worn together, uh, mix and match, and it, it's not trendy items, so you can wear them all the time. Um, and then to that, we add capsules. And so in the fall, we'll add a sweater collection of three or four items, uh, coats, things like that, that are very seasonally driven. And then in the spring, we'll add lighter weight items. 
which is ideal because anybody who's starting to slow down their consumption mm-hmm. and start to buy fewer pieces, you find that you kind of gravitate towards, I, I read somewhere that if you looked at your laundry basket, mm. you know, 20% of your wardrobe is always in there and mm-hmm. it's getting 80% of the wear. So, that's so right. we're always kind of gravitated to certain clothes. And if you find something that's classic and works for your, for your wardrobe, you go back the next season and it's gone a, because it's, it's now short sleeves instead of long sleeves mm. or because the brand has moved on. That's right. But even when we talk about calendars, like from a consumer point of view, weren't you already slow? Like isn't two isn't two collections a year slow? And isn't that how we got into this idea about fast fashion? Yeah. So at the time, two wasn't extremely slow, but it is considered that now slower, I suppose. But there was still that sense that you had to merchandise certain items in the line and you had to start over fresh every season and scrap your theme and scrap your fabrics and start completely fresh with a new mood board. And so I'm building on this uniform collection constantly and always keeping those in mind. And like you mentioned, um, they'll always be available. So customers who want to either replace them or buy a new fabric because they like the way that that piece fits and merchandises with their wardrobe um, can always find them. And then the stores can always replenish them. Um, So it seemed counterintuitive to me as a designer and a product developer to be scrapping everything that I'd done, which is actually a very expensive process of developing patterns and sourcing fabrics and trying prototypes and, and tests and things like that. So scrapping that every season is really expensive for a designer, but we're forced to do it because of these unwritten rules that the industry has. Um, and so it's, it's saved me quite a bit of money in that sense, but it's also recreated a relationship with my stores uh, and my individual consumers that I hadn't anticipated. And then the other benefit that it really created was uh, being able to work with my production facility differently because what they were doing at the time was laying off workers in the down season, uh, times when they weren't producing, and bringing them back during the heavy production schedule, which is when everybody else is producing. Um, And I know that because they're here in New York, so I can go see them. And so now they're producing my capsule collection and the uniform collection um, at different times of the year. So it's a constant supply chain for them as well. No Uh, wonder it won an award. That's fantastic. (laughs) And you're also now um, have been um, renowned lately for zero waste, Mm -hmm. another kind of way to kind of reduce the waste that a designer contributes Mm -hmm. to the industry and to the world. Can you explain what zero waste is and and what the benefits are? Yeah. So the way I interpret zero waste as I always call it lazy zero waste, um, because you you look at designers like Holly McQuillan or Timo Riesenen, who have a book about this, uh, a very great book, uh, I'll mention. Um, And the way I approach it is with squares and rectangles using the full width of the fabric. Uh, And then I pleat those squares or, or gather them. Um, and but I'm not cutting into them really, except for to add pockets and things. Um, but it's really based on squares. And actually, my first collection in 2009 was called the Square Project, and it was entirely zero waste. And I've moved a little bit away from that, but there are still styles in the collection that are zero waste, uh, and that I'm continually making. And we keep all of our scraps. So any waste that is produced from our traditional collection, we reuse uh, either by cutting it into strips and we weaving them. So we're working with an organization called Weaving Hand in Brooklyn and their um, uh, healing arts organization. And and they do a, a collaboration with us every every time we have these waste scraps. 
And anybody who's a, a sewist or sews at home knows mm-hmm. when you lay the pattern out and mm-hmm. you cut out that there's all this kind of off cuts. Mm-hmm. And so the same thing happens at the industrial level. Mm-hmm. What do you think would happen to the industry as a whole if the whole industry could move a little bit more? I mean, it requires obviously engineers. It requires mm-hmm. bringing in different kind of brains into the pattern making um, supply chain. But what do you think would happen if the whole industry could just take one step closer to zero waste? Well, for one thing, it would save a lot of money. Um, because the industry average uh, for a good pattern marker is about 15% waste, and that's a good one. That's an efficient marker, uh, which is the way you lay out your pattern and and put it on the fabric and cut. Um, And so you're losing 15% of your fabric, and if that's an expensive fabric, that could be quite a lot of waste. Um, And most factories don't save that. It just goes straight to landfill. And in New York, that's a substantial amount of landfill coming from our manufacturing. So there are some solutions like fab scrap um, and then ultimately Evernew uh, that are trying to deal with this production waste. However, I think it really does need to be tackled at the design level and at the production level. So even prior to the manufacturing, we need to start looking at the way our products are designed and, and start to eliminate waste at that level. I love it. Okay, we're going to take a quick break, and then we're going to come back and talk more with Tara St. James of Study New York. Music in this break is by EULA. The song is called Awake. We'll be right back. Today's program is brought to you by Corin, supplier of Japanese chef knives and restaurant supplies. Corin is proud of their Japanese culture and traditions, but they want you to know that their products are not just for Japanese restaurants. Their knives and tableware bring out the best qualities of food from every culture and fit into every restaurant, from French to Pan-Asian to American. And that is why they're located in New York City, where people from every country in the world come to eat. Corin's unique store in Lower Manhattan is home to perhaps the most extensive collection of Japanese chef knives in the world, including Japan, plus the rarest natural sharpening stones and exquisitely designed tableware. They also host special events such as knife sharpening demonstrations and parties with New York's most famous chefs and restaurateurs. Corin is dedicated to this ideal, bringing the implicit and elegance of Japanese culture to your table, be it in your home or in the finest restaurant. For more information, visit Corin.com. And you're back. You're listening to Magnifico Radio, and I'm sitting here with Tara St. James of Study New York, and we're talking about slow fashion. And normally I like to know if people grew up with hippie parents or have some sort of parental influence that led to this path. But in your case, I want to know, did you go to an artsy school or did you grow up in a chic neighborhood of Montreal? Uh, I would have to say no to both those questions. Because one of your classmates is also a leader in fashion. Mm-hmm. You and Caroline Issa have been friends since high school, and you've both risen to acclaim. You've won the awards I mentioned earlier, and Caroline, after several years as a model, now as the editor of Tank Magazine, is a regular in the front row on the Global Fashion Week circuit. In fact, this week she's at Tokyo Fashion Week. Mm-hmm. And I reached out to her to ask her what she thinks makes you and study so different. Oh, and so she wrote... 
You know, for me, Tara is one of those true visionaries who, since the beginning of her career in fashion, always questioned the status quo and always kept in mind how best to incorporate sustainable practices. What amazes me is how quietly and surely she has stuck to her principles and ideas on how how fashion could be run, and only when it became fashionable, in quotes, did the accolades start coming in. She was born ready, but the industry wasn't. Oh, thanks, Kara. I know, it's very sweet. Mm. So I want to know this visionary aspect. Has it been with you since the start, and where did it come from? Well, um, I I think I am just naturally inclined to question things. It, it's in my nature. Um, <laughs> you asked about my high school. I was uh, captain of the debate team on high school, so I like to argue a lot. Um, and I always like to know why and how things work. So it, it did seem natural. I worked in the traditional fashion industry for, um, I guess, six or seven years before starting uh, Covet, which was a sustainable brand. And that was under the umbrella of a larger company. Um, so I was lucky to be able to do research and sustainability um, through with their production facilities. And um, as I slowly started to learn the, I guess, effects of conventional fashion on the environment. And I should preface this with saying that I was traveling to Hong Kong and mainland China four times a year for production. So I was on the ground there really seeing um, what was happening and, and seeing who was working on the on the product. And I was lucky enough to work with really some great production facilities, but at the same time, they were right next door to some not so great ones. And so uh, I really had firsthand um, viewpoint of, of the detrimental effects of, of the fashion industry, especially in the denim world. Um, denim is one of the highest polluting um, industries, especially when back then we were looking at sandblasted and washed jeans. Now the, the, the trend is more in the, the raw denim, which is a lot cleaner because we're not sandblasting them, we're not bleaching them, we're not acid washing them. Um, but at the time that was definitely the case. And so I, I learned a lot about... Con- the effects of conventional cotton. And once I learned the differences between conventional and organic, it was really hard to unlearn that information. And so just by nature, I couldn't, in my conscience, um, go back to to traditional. Uh, And so it was almost like I had no choice. I was being pulled in this direction. And um, I'm not the product of hippie parents, (laughs) Um, but I am Canadian. So I suppose there's something there that's just inherent. I say that too often, and, and people kind of look at me with that, you know, sideways dog look, like, what do you mean Canadian? But I, I think that there is something in the way that we grew up and, and having so much nature in our backyard. Um, so aside from the accolades, what are the opportunities or benefits from being so fixed in your vision? You've been doing this now since 2009. Mm-hmm. So what are the advantages of, of really crafting a business and a life based on the values that you believe in? Um, I really like, well, I suppose the accolades are one, but um, like I said, I, I don't see it as uh, a choice. Uh, I have no alternative. It's either I design sustainably and ethically or I don't design at all. So those are my two options. So I guess the benefit is that I get to actually design product. <laughs> that's the benefit because that's what I feel I was born to do. Um, there, There is something called design guilt that I don't, I may have coined this term because I haven't heard anyone use it, but it, Everybody who works in the ethical community understands it as soon as I talk about it is um, just 
this guilt of producing something and making more product and putting it out on the market and and then going back to the drawing board and doing it again and and using natural resources or any resources uh, using labor when maybe it's not necessary because there is enough clothing out there for all of us for a long long time we don't actually need to be making more clothing but by the same token I need to be a happy person and that's my contribution to this planet is me walking around as a happy person and designing and producing makes me happy so I need to be doing those things ethically so that I can live with myself and wake up in the morning and, and be content with what I'm doing um, so I don't see it as a benefit I just see it as a non option like breathing yeah basically kind. and so because now you have this knowledge um and i talk about it a lot with people especially around my book because my book shocks a lot of people mm -hmm. and, and it says right in the beginning you know be be very careful because you can't unknow what you learn um so what are the are there any drawbacks now to to this having building a career that's kind of uh, like restricted or kind of set up by the values that you have of course, and I suppose the biggest one is um, being restricted or limited in my options, especially with regards to materials. Um, because if I walk the fabric trade shows or I go to a showroom and look at the new collections of materials, I'm really limited to the ones that are being made ethically. Um, I have the the good fortune of working with some great fabric mills who only produce ethical fabrics and so I tend to gravitate just towards them because then I know everything that I'm selecting has been carefully made. Um, however, it does happen where I am exposed to some great fabric that has no sustainable component at all and it's really limiting. As a designer, I want to be able to use great raw materials and sometimes I can't. Um, and so that's probably my biggest frustration. Um, you know, people talk about cost being prohibitive, and I don't think that's the case. I think uh, being an emerging designer or a small brand, your costs are ultimately going to be higher. So the, the increased cost of organic cotton really doesn't make a difference in the long run um, because I'm not producing enough to, to see that difference anyway. And, and so you've also, um, and we didn't really touch on this, but you've also embraced transparency. You're one of the few designers out there, in fact, maybe even the first designer, to totally open up your supply chain and post it on the website. So if there are emerging designers, of which we know many, who are like, oh, I just wish I knew where, where to get organic cotton, mm -hmm. you actually put all of that, which is so antithetical to what the fashion industry does typically because mm -hmm. all of those things are have been typically secrets and trade secrets and closed secrets but you reveal everything on mm -hmm. the website what is there any drawback to that um there yeah there has been um part of the reason i did it was because i do believe in open source as the new philosophy in design maybe not necessarily fashion but in traditional design um and one of the main reasons was that I was getting a lot of calls and emails from design students, young designers, asking me for my supply chain. And I have no problem sharing it because I want the, you know, I'm, I'm spending a lot of time vetting these suppliers and I want the ones that I think are doing good to get out there and be, have a viable business. And I'm not going to be able to support them all by myself. And so if they can be accessed by this other community of designers. Um, it just actually saved me a lot of time by putting all the information on my website so that I don't have to answer these emails as frequently anymore. Um, but also I think it's important for consumers to know where their product is coming from. And I think if I'm putting out 
where the fabric is made. If I know where the cotton is grown, I'll put it there. Um, it's not always easy to find that out, but uh, where the fabric is mil- made, how it's dyed, uh, and then where the piece is sewn. And every one of my garments is hand-signed by the sewer. Um, so you see the person's name. And there's a little bit of a, a touch of humanity there. And it's not just a pre-printed label, but it is you know, hand-marked, hand-signed by, by a human. And I think people forget that garments are sewn by hand. Everything is made by hand. Um, it's made on an industrial machine, of course, but there still needs to be a human being operating that. And I think with technology being what it is, we, we forget that sometimes because um, we don't make anything at home anymore. Our grandmothers aren't making it for us anymore. And so we, we don't have that connection with clothing. And so I wanted to give that back to my consumers a little bit. And and hopefully have them ask questions of other brands when they don't see the transparency. Because I think it should be the norm. I, I do, too. And I, and I love it because I think it's just that one step forward that kind of differentiates lip service about transparency with actual transparency. Mm. Because I think you can say that you do it, but we all know updating a website takes time. And even myself. So, so when you take the time to actually sit down and update the website with that information, then I don't know, it's just an extra step that I think is really special about you and the brand. Thank you. Um, so now that you've taken all of this attention and all this, um, really, yeah, attention that goes into the brand, how big do you think the brand can grow or how, how, where do you want to see it in the next kind of like three, five years? That is actually one of my biggest struggles because, Uh, I do really believe in slow fashion and I don't want the brand to grow to such a huge place that I can't control it anymore. Um, Originally, I thought that it could be uh, a mega brand and that I've thrown that idea out the window. I I really want the brand to grow very organically, um, to develop a really consistent customer base, which I'm starting to see, you know, repeat customers people who come back, who understand the brand, who respect it, um, and and see how far it can grow there. Um, I think there are a lot of opportunities. I think menswear might be one of the next big tackles. Um, it's actually my background. I studied menswear, and so my, my degree is in tailoring. Um, and I think that's pretty obvious when you look at all the fabric choices I make. Um, they're very menswear-driven, so it's not a surprise to people when I tell them that. Um, but I think the future of my my customer base is really in in the unisex and and menswear brand so i think i'll probably take it in that direction but i have no no philosophies on being huge um or being a mega brand because i don't think that's what's what the future holds for me medium size sold at every whole foods across north america (laughs) oh definitely not no why not especially your Uh, twist dress like you make this fantastic classic dress it's totally affordable what's the what's the consumer price on that it's 110 us yeah, and what's it made out of? Organic cotton from Texas. Amazing. Yeah. It's so amazing. I love the fact that you have this price range. I love the fact that you mm. keep something so simple as mm. a dress, like affordable and like and really timeless. So even though it's not affordable in the H&M terms or mm. in a fast fashion terms, it, it's definitely, um, I think, for organic cotton made locally with attention to transparency mm. and slow fashion, it's a very reasonable piece that would be in your wardrobe for a long time. Well, that's a perfect example of one of our uniform pieces as well, because we've perfected it over the years. And now I think it's gotten to a point where it's really great to wear. It suits a lot of different customers, and I'll keep making it until people stop buying it. 
Oh, that's awesome. Thank you so much for joining me today. It's been my pleasure to talk to you about this. If you want to find out more about Tara, please go to studynewyork.com. I'd love to shout out to Roberta's Home of Heritage Radio Network, where you can find me each Monday live at 1 o'clock. You can always listen to Magnifico Radio on iTunes or Stitcher. And please check out our blog or sign up for our newsletter at magnifico.com. Until next week. Thanks for listening to this program on HeritageRadioNetwork.org. You can find all of our archived programs on our website or as podcasts in the iTunes store by searching Heritage Radio Network. You can like us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter at Heritage underscore Radio. You can email us questions at any time at info at HeritageRadioNetwork.org. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization. To donate and become a member, visit our website today. Thanks for listening.